This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 11th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Megan Cantwell talks with Justin Reich about massive open online courses, also known as MOOCs. After coming online more than a decade ago, some of them are starting to pivot to a money-making model. Justin suggests there might be some good reasons for that. And I talk with Christina Warner about a skeleton with mysterious microscopic blue crystals stuck in the tartar of her teeth for more than a thousand years. Christina, an archaeogeneticist, ended up collaborating with physicists and historians to figure out what the substance was, where it came from, and how it came to be attached to the skeleton's teeth. MOOCs, or Massive Open Online Courses, gained lots of attention in 2012 as a way to make education accessible globally through access to free video lectures and assignments from some of the world's best professors. Many enrolled in these courses, but unfortunately, the attrition rate was also quite high. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here with Justin Reich to talk about the state of MOOCs in 2019 and why some are now offering online master's degrees for professionals. Hey, Justin. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Could you just give a background on how MOOCs were started? Sure. In 2006, 2007, 2008, there were a group of mostly Canadian educators who were doing really interesting innovative work with launching online classes on the open web. Classes usually had a course number at a university, but then they put all the materials online so everyone who wanted to could join in. And they had uh, a couple thousand folks who would arrive to those classes. And then in 2011, there were a few different folks in California who were enthusiastic about the idea, including Peter Norvig, and Sebastian Thrun, and they had over 100,000 people sign up to their introduction to AI class. So it was sort of an idea that caught fire. What was the goal of providing this service? You know, there are a number of the key principles at the beginning of this who said our goal is to really widely disseminate these learning opportunities. They sort of hoped that it would be a kind of a blue ocean market is sometimes what it's called in Silicon Valley terms, that there would be a, a whole vast array of people who weren't consuming this service that would be potential consumers that it could spread widely, especially in places that didn't have access to lots of higher education. What problems did they see emerge from these programs as they spread to these areas? 
People have studied distance education for a long time, and self-regulated learning is really hard. It's really hard to, to say, I'm going to make some extra space in my life to take this course and persist all the way through it. It's proven much easier to have people who already have access to higher education get access to more higher education through this kind of free, unstructured online learning than it is to sort of create new on-ramps into higher education. Although there are incredible stories of people from every single walk of life, every single background who've encountered MOOCs and had really great, powerful learning experiences from them. There's a pretty high rate of people who end up not continuing their MOOC or soon after they start it, they stop it. Has this problem persisted or worsened over time or has it pretty much just been a problem throughout? We have good access to Harvard and MIT data and so we can make claims about what we see in that. Typically, about half the people who register for a course never show up or click into it at all. That's not a big deal. It's totally fine for people to indicate an interest in something and then not decide to pursue that interest. And that hasn't really changed very much. What has somewhat gone down, at least in Harvard and, and MIT data, is the proportion of people who return after a second year. And most of the folks who come and join a Harvard X or MIT X course don't come back the following year for a subsequent course. And that proportion of folks has gotten smaller with each subsequent year, both as a total number of people who have enrolled has gone up for a few years and then gone down more in recent years. But that, that's been sort of a stable trend. One of the particular challenges, I think, to courses is like when someone signs up for Twitter or signs up for Instagram, there's no logical ending point. Your feed just sort of keeps scrolling over and over again. But courses end. As that ends, people go off and they do other things. It's just hard to build a lot of growth when you have this sort of natural breaking point. Once they realized that these problems were persisting, did they do anything to address them or was there any way for them to address it? Uh, some colleagues and I have published some studies where we've tried different sorts of interventions based on social psychology or behavioral economics. And we've had some initial evidence that those things might work, although as we've replicated them over time, we haven't seen all of the gains that we might hope. Building a course that you can really learn something from, that really advances the science of learning, is much more resource intensive than just getting a course out there that teaches some people stuff. Universities are typically trying to take the budgets they have to make new courses and to spread them widely across lots of different groups so that the money spread fairly and so that lots of courses can get made. And it's hard to get your course out there on a budget, on a deadline, and have a whole research agenda that's going along in parallel with it. Yeah, these programs definitely need money to sustain and Previously, they started out by selling certificates of completion as a revenue stream, but now they're shifting to a different revenue model. Could you talk a little bit about that? There's some emerging consensus conversion around online master's degree programs or other kinds of programs that are targeted at working professionals. Some of this is not brand new. So Udacity very early on had an interesting partnership with Georgia Tech where they created the online master's degree in computer science. Coursera announced that they were going to make more partnerships with schools to offer fully online kind of MOOC-based master's degrees. The pivot to supporting universities and creating master's degrees puts these MOOC providers um, competing with a lot of well-established organizations that help universities uh, create online master's degrees. 
And are these MOOCs run differently in comparison to these more well-established programs? One trend might be that a lot of the established organizations that have helped universities create online courses have mostly focused on courses with staffing models that most people would recognize from older online education, that there's 20, 25, 40 students in a class, that there's one instructor, that there's some sense of connection, you know, that there's not at all the scale that you see like in the Georgia Tech online computer science masters where they're really trying to do a combination of automating quite a bit of the instruction. And then, you know, some some interesting labor models where Udacity has a network of people around the world that grade people's assignments. There's not one TA sitting at Georgia Tech or there's not 30 TAs sitting around a table at Georgia Tech who are, who are grading all these things. They're taking advantage of crowdsourcing and sort of other models to try to find new economies of scale in teaching. So this pivot to professional degree programs with MOOCs, has there been any comparison yet between the retention rate with these programs versus more well-established programs? No, and, it, um, and it's going to take a while because the programs are designed to complement working professionals. We have under review right now another paper that we're doing, which is a review of MIT's first MicroMasters program, the Supply Chain Management Program. You know, and the amount of work that people put into these classes sort of in the corners and nooks and crannies of their lives, you know, just people describing to us like, I go sit at my desk at lunch and I fire up some videos, like I stay after work late into the night doing these things. So it's pretty hard to make it a kind of full-time commitment the way that these are set up. You know, as a result, it's a little bit tricky to figure out when people have attrited from the program when they've really left. It's not necessarily a bad thing if someone's poking along at one course a year and it takes them a lot longer to finish, but they are able to do that and they meet their goals. One thing that might be a good thing is that if the costs of these programs are reduced, you know, and you're paying them per course or credit, then the risk is also distributed. You're not sort of paying up front for a big program and things like that. So overall, would you say that the programs through MOOCs are more affordable than these other online degree programs and the target audience for the MOOC programs are different than the traditional online programs? There's one study that's out on this. And again, it's up with this first sort of Georgia Tech class. They did a neat study where for idiosyncratic reasons, no one knew that they made in the admissions process a grade cut score. So if you were below this cut score, you didn't have a chance of getting admitted. If you're above the cut score, you could be considered. And of course, people just above and below that cut score are not actually different from one another. It's, a, you know, there's a sort of a bit of randomization. So you can look at people on either side of that cut score and see sort of what happens to them. And the people above the cut score who go in, many of them went into the Georgia Tech program. And the people who didn't get into the program, they didn't pursue other options. So the argument that Josh and his colleagues make is that this is sort of genuinely creating new kinds of pathways for people. How big the demand is kind of remains to be seen, but it's an interesting model. So what do you think is the future of MOOCs given this pivot to professional degrees? My colleague Mimi Ito says that people often hope that new technologies will disrupt existing systems. And oftentimes, new technologies get domesticated by existing systems. And so one future you can imagine here is what you might call a sort of productive domestication that in various nooks and crannies, mostly focused on sort of professional education, master's degree programs, there are some ways that already educated people can get some cheaper, more efficient, more you know, sort of aligned with their work-life schedule degrees through these programs. If we saw that as the case, you know, one good lesson that might emerge from that is that 
as there are sort of inevitably new technologies that catch the attention of education administrators and education policymakers, a good stance to take is something along the lines of, oh, there's probably like neat ways that this new technology can help us do what we're doing better in particular kinds of ways. But it's unlikely that any particular new technology is going to lead to a sort of dramatic reorganization of, of higher education, particularly around the most pressing challenges of how do we support first-generation students? How do we create more access opportunities in places that are physically distant from centers of higher education? Those challenges, I think technology can play a role in, in engaging but in many ways, those challenges will remain sort of political challenges and policy challenges, you know, where we make investments more so than new technologies that presage a grand reordering of things. All right. Thanks so much, Justin. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. Justin Reich is an assistant professor in the Comparative Media Studies Department at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You can find a link to his piece at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for Sarah Crespi's interview with Christina Warner about mysterious crystals in the teeth of a thousand-year-old skeleton. When you go to the dentist, there's this pleasant process where they scrape your teeth and they take, it's called dental calculus or tartar off your teeth. Is that pleasant for anyone? No, but luckily that is a relatively new thing. And back in the day in like medieval times, people were not having their teeth scraped every three to six months. And I say lucky because there is precious information hidden in that dental calculus. And we've been able to learn things about the oral microbiomes of the people who lived in the past and also about uh, different diseases that they might have had. And now it's also telling us things about their occupations, what they did every day or, or what kinds of chemicals they encountered in their lives. I have uh, Christina Warner here. She's going to talk about some dental calculus that was contaminated with a blue mineral. So Christina, what did you find these blue particles associated with the dental calculus on these remains uh, was? I mean, when we first saw them, I mean, it was probably the last thing I would have expected to find. We were trying to look at diet and health. Yeah. We expected to see bacteria because after all, calculus is made of plaque, dental plaque, which is made up of bacteria. And we expected to find little bits of food because when you're alive and you have plaque on your teeth and you're eating or you're smoking or you're breathing in pollen, all these little things get stuck in your plaque. Over time, the plaque calcifies. It mineralizes in your mouth from the minerals in your saliva. In fact, it's the only part of your body that fossilizes while you're still alive. (laughs) And this actually happens over and over again. These layers actually build up almost like tree rings or layers of an onion. So after you've calcified one layer, you'll form another layer of dental plaque and keep doing it. This woman that we looked at, we actually cross-sectioned it. And there were so many layers. It really looked like this calculus hadn't been removed in 20 or 25 years. It had so many layers built on top of each other. But... For an archaeologist, this is a gold mine. It's like a time capsule that tells the story of, of this woman's life. What was the first thought from the group if, you know, they saw these little blue flecks in, in her teeth under the microscope? We had no idea what it was. We thought, could it be some sort of contaminant? Is there something in soil that's blue? Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> no, there's not. Uh, we looked into it extensively. Actually, blue minerals are very rare. They tend to be things you have to mine from deep in the earth. They don't occur in surface sediments. So we thought, well, maybe, maybe it's a it's a mineral of some kind and maybe it's a paint because it's certainly, it was so blue. It was royal blue. It was the brightest, brightest blue. It looked like Robin's eggs, tiny little Robin's <laughs> eggs. 
I thought at first it was probably azurite. Azurite is a pretty common mineral. It's a pretty inexpensive mineral mm -hmm. and it's really widespread across Europe and it was used by artists in the Middle Ages. So I was pretty sure it was azurite. It ended up being fairly complicated to identify for a number of reasons. One is as we were looking at it, the blue began to fade and disappear. Oh, and yeah. this happened over and over again. It took a while for us to figure out what was happening and, and we finally figured it out. When you want to look at calculus under a microscope, you can't just put it under a microscope. It's too compacted and you can't uh -huh. see anything. You have to break it up. And the usual way of doing this is to apply a little bit of weak acid and it just dissolves the mineral enough to allow the particles to come out. It turns out that many mineral pigments are actually unstable in the presence of acid and they lose their color. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were seeing. So that gave you a clue that maybe it wasn't azurite? Well, azurite also breaks down. Oh. Um, we actually tested many different reference pigments and, and determined which were stable and which were not. So like cobalt blues is stable, but azurite is not. And lapis lazuli was not. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many blues that were available to the medieval painter. They had a quite limited access. Of the blues that they had available to them, most are blue because of a particular element. So cobalt blue is blue because of cobalt. Mm -hmm. Azurite blue because of copper. Vivianite is blue because of iron. Lapis lazuli is actually not one mineral. It's a bunch of minerals together. The blue component is called lazurite. There's also white minerals in there called phlogopite and also pyrite, the golden flecks that, hmm. that people often recognize. One thing your paper reminded me of is that in a television show and they say, what is this mineral residue? And they just hand it to the lab and the lab hands them back an, an answer. It is never that easy. You had to go through a lot of steps to identify what exactly was going on here um, on these teeth. So what were some of the tests that you had to subject this mineral to? Well, the trouble with lazure, the, the blue mineral, is that there's nothing unusual about it in terms of its elements. Ah. It's made up of the same elements that are found in soil. They're just configured very differently into in their mineral structure. And so we used a technique called Raman spectroscopy, which actually allows us to look more at the mineral structure itself. And that we were able to get a very good match for lazurite. After we had identified the blue crystals as being a match using two different methods for lazurite, we thought, well, let's test some of these white particles that ordinarily we would completely ignore. <laughs> um, and they turned out to be phlogopite. Okay. And now lazurite and phlogopite only co-occur together in lapis lazuli. So that gave you that confidence that you, you knew exactly what you were looking at. But it's really surprising that that's what you were looking at. It was extremely surprising. Lapis lazuli was one of the most expensive and rarest artist materials of the Middle Ages. We did not expect to find it. <laughs> I think it's hard for us to understand how expensive it was and how difficult it would have been to get there. Lapis lazuli only had one source during the Middle Ages, and that was Afghanistan. So this pigment had to have traveled from its source in Afghanistan over land along the paths of the Silk Road, basically, <laughs> through the Islamic world, where it was probably refined into a pigment, traded up into Venice, and then distributed into Europe. Wow. It made an extraordinary... 6,000 kilometer journey to make it into the mouth of this very ordinary Well, what about uh, that? Woman. What about that last little bit of the journey? How would it end up in her mouth? I mean, there's no way this could happen completely accidentally. Mm -hmm. She must have been exposed in a very intimate way. But how could that possibly happen? Yeah, we spent a long time debating what the possible scenarios could be. I have my favorite. It's not the one that it is. My favorite is all the, the book kissing that people were doing at the, the time. Book kissing. Yes. <laughs> so so this is really incredible during the Middle Ages, but but actually later than this. Yeah, period. So that was what eliminated really it. Yeah. Yeah. During the 14th century, there's this sort of fad 
for what they call emotive devotional osculation. So <laughs> this is like intense kissing of books. And the idea was to, to become very affectionate with the images. Eventually, they started creating these little osculation targets at the bottoms of the pages to try to encourage priests, for example, to kiss the target and not the face of Jesus because it was wiping away his face. That one was discarded because it was it wasn't uh, the, the timing wasn't right. And let's turn to one of the what are the likely scenarios in which this woman would have introduced this into her mouth? So we came up with two that we thought were more likely that either she was trying to produce a pigment herself and thus may have inhaled some of the dust. Mm -hmm. If that was so, she would probably be producing it either for herself or one of her sisters. Or she was an artist herself. With the first scenario, although it's possible, I don't think it's likely for one reason. And that is because if you just take lapis lazuli stone and you grind it, yeah. you'll get a really dull gray pigment. It's not nice. It has too much of the phlogopite and other uh, minerals inside that dull the color. So what you have to do is you have to refine it. And the technique used to refine lapis lazuli at this time wasn't really known in Europe. It was mm -hmm. primarily performed in, in the Islamic world. But what I think is probably the most likely is that she was an artist herself. We do know from some artist manuals uh, around the same time that one technique for producing a really fine point for, for fine painting work involved compressing the, um, the paintbrush between the lips. The lapis lazuli was quite distributed through her mouth. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't dust in one place. It was also really dispersed. So it didn't seem to have been incorporated as a paint, for example, if she had kissed it and it had gotten stuck. And also, there are some really amazing letters from right around the same time period, maybe a little bit later, also in Germany, where there is a men's monastery. There's an armarius who is the keeper of the books, and he had commissioned the production of several new books from a neighboring women's community. So when you say when you say she was an artist, it's more about illuminating manuscripts than it is about making paintings. Correct. Okay. It was very likely for illuminating manuscripts because there was a lot of book production right. at this time. It gives evidence that women were producing books and they were producing important books. Yeah. But unfortunately, these letters don't state which pigments were being used. We can tell by the amount of silk and the amount of parchment that he was sending for these books to be made, that they would have been quite nice books. Is there anything else from the gravesite or from the ruins of the monastery where, where this, these remains were? Or is there anything else there that would help with that? The women's community from the letter was a different one. Okay. It was not this community. The remains are from a site called Dalheim. Dalheim is located in Western Germany. And today it's actually the site of a museum about monasteries. And the, the cemetery that we focus on was one of the very, was associated with one of the earliest religious communities that was founded in this area. And it was a women's community. What's interesting about Dalheim is almost nothing survives at all. Today, if you can go and visit, and I recommend doing so, it's really fun. But all that's left of the women's community is the stone foundations. None of the walls are there. There's no art that survives. There's not a single book that survives. This poor women's community, which at its, at its height supported actually a very small group of women, only about a dozen women lived there at any given time. It underwent multiple fires. Um, it burned to the ground multiple times. It was sacked in at least two battles. Wow. It was hit by plague. And eventually it was abandoned during another war and a nun was murdered. And the whole community fell apart. This was centuries later. 
And then later, a group of monks moved in and they built a monastery. And that's the monastery that actually really survives there today. And that today is really the museum people go to visit. Mm -hmm. But you can still find this kind of traces of this little women's, what they call a Frauenkloster, this little women's monastery, a little women's community still there, the church foundations and the foundations of of the place where they lived. But it's very small and kind of tucked away and forgotten. (laughs) It's like it had just been erased. Wow. Absolutely erased. And so to me, that was something that was so interesting is in this totally unexpected context from this very ordinary seeming woman from this cemetery, we've been able to identify someone who was likely in life quite an extraordinary person. She must have been a very talented artist. And I say artist here because lapis lazuli was not used by scribes. Mm. So it's not used typically to write words. It was used to illuminate pictures. Wow. That is amazing. So are there other remains from this site that that might be able to shed more light on this? We only in this initial study looked at four individuals. Mm -hmm. And that was because we had a completely different purpose to the study originally. I think what this has shown me is that this could be a really important way of going back and revisiting many monasteries and identifying artists and craftspeople. Mm-hmm. One of the big lessons we learned here is it's also very important how you analyze the calculus. In most cases, what people would normally do is start the decalcification with the acid, walk away, wait till it was finished, come back. Oh. At that point, all of it would have been gone. So it made me wonder how many artists have already been looked at, but because of the way the calculus was treated, we never saw it. Yeah. So one of the things we want to go back, apply these newer techniques, And to see if we could kind of approach this in a different way and start to identify the artists themselves in the archaeological record. How common was it for women during this time to be scribes or to be artists involved in bookmaking? That's a fantastic question. And this is something that Alison Beach, who's the historian of the project, has researched extensively. Um, And she's turned up quite a bit of evidence of women who were prolific producers of books. But a lot of detective work has had to go into this because one of the challenges we face is women often did not sign their works. Mm-hmm. In some cases, a list survives or a nun, a later nun, for example, would write down that sister so-and-so wrote these books. But if you look at the books themselves, nothing indicates that. What she was also able to do is take one book that was signed and match the handwriting to several other anonymous books. And so we could see, okay, this group was all written by one person Mm -hmm. and here it's signed. So we can apply that name to all of them. But it's really painstaking work to try to reconstruct this. And so I think it's really helpful to have this second line of evidence. I mean, many people might think that archaeologists and historians work together because we work on kind of similar things, but actually it doesn't happen that often. We kind of exist in different worlds. One group lives in libraries, and one group digs in the dirt. And those are very different places. <laughs> so you guys are not all Indiana Jones, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, we're, we're quite different. You know, here was a really great problem that we all got to sit together and really talk about. And then we needed more. So we teamed up with physicists. So it was a fun project where we really had archaeologists, historians, and physicists all sitting together talking, trying to puzzle out this question. And that was tremendous fun. That is really cool. Really seems like this is a totally different way of doing archaeology. Who would have thought that if you wanted to understand artists in the Middle Ages, you would look at their dental plaque? Yeah. Sometimes I think we get tripped up 
with thinking of, that artifacts are only stone tools and pottery. Mm-hmm. But there is this entire archaeology of the invisible that is out there that we are only now starting to appreciate. Things decompose and break down at a, at a large scale, but many of the microscopic particles and the biomolecules actually preserve for a really, really long time. Yeah. I feel like we're right now kind of in this renaissance of archaeology. Yeah. I feel like with a lot of the new scientific technologies that are available, we're kind of a new kind of archaeology is being born, and I'm really excited about it. Very cool. Okay, uh, thank you again, Christina. This has been really fun. Thanks so much. Christina Warner is a professor in the Department of Archaeogenetics at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. You can find a link to her research and science advances at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. To place an ad on the Science Podcast, contact midroll.com. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.